attention to one of the key reformers of the Protestant Reformation, uh, Martin Luther, who was a German monk uh, in the Catholic Church and saw the abuses of the Catholic Church at that time in the 16th century. And that's when he protested by nailing his 95 theses attacking the abuses of the church at that time. And of course, he, as Brother Marcus pointed out, he was called under the carpet by the Holy Roman Emperor at that time. And and probably would have been executed on the spot if it hadn't been for a no, uh, friend who was of nobility that smuggled him out of the Diet of Worms and and uh, into his fortress castle in another part of the empire, and uh, and hence from that mighty uh, fortress castle, history tells us that Martin Luther wrote the hymn that you and I sang, such a majestic hymn. Um, a mighty fortress is our God, which is based on Psalm 46, by the way, if you go back and read that. And the Psalms is talking about God as our refuge. And, uh, and, and indeed he is. I thought it was interesting that the poet Samuel Coleridge, he made the observation. He said, Luther did as much for the Reformation with his hymns as he did by his translation of the Bible. And I think that was really important. You know, considering that dear, the hymn that you and I were singing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, became known as the battle cry of the Reformation. And as you can see that, our faith, as we faced opposition as people of God, and we surely will, as you'll see in the lesson today, we surely will, from the forces of evil who would like to, to suppress the message of the gospel, who would like nothing more than to curtail the activities of the church in the world, we will face opposition, but we have God, Almighty God, Sovereign God, all-powerful, eternal God. He is our fortress, our refuge in times of, of intimidation, if you will. And so I, I think it's important that you and I appreciate today, especially in the lesson as we look back in Acts chapter 6, that throughout the history of the church, going all the way back to the, the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and uh, ascension of Christ to today, there is a, a, a scarlet thread woven through the centuries of the church's history that represents the blood of men and women of faith who so strongly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and upon the authority of the infallible inerrant word of God that they were willing to lay their lives down rather than to recant on the Christian faith and what they believed in Jesus Christ. I would ask you and I'd ask myself, would I be willing to do that? Are you willing to do that? You see, Martin Luther didn't stand alone. Even back there in the 16th century, he was probably looking back into the 15th century when he saw the man John Huss, who was also a reformer, who was called before the, the Catholic Church at that time, the Pope, and instructed to recant of his faith, and he refused to do so and John Huss, even though the Pope had assured him that he would have safe passage back home, the Pope reneged on that and had him burned at the stake. And along with him, Jerome of Prague, a Prague, also a follower, was burned at the stake. But John Huss was probably looking back further in the history of the church, earlier than himself, to the 14th century at John Wycliffe, who even when the Pope had instructed that no one would translate the scriptures from Latin. And those, the, the majority of the people in the empire didn't, it didn't speak Latin. And John Wycliffe interpreted the scriptures into the English language, risking his very life. Though he was not killed for doing so, he would have been if he had been caught. But his followers, known as the Lollards, were rounded up and systematically burned at the stake because they refused to recount all their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would I do that? Would I be willing to do that? Would you be willing to do that? What does your faith in Jesus Christ actually look like? But then John Wycliffe probably was looking back even further in the early parts of the church, all the way back to the second century, to the first post-New Testament martyr. This is someone outside of the apostolic age who gave his life for the, for the sake of Christ. His name was Polycarp, a leader in the, leader in the church. Who, who, uh, who spoke boldly on his faith in Jesus Christ 
And the Roman leader called him before him and demanded that he recant of this, this so-called Christian faith in Jesus Christ. And Polycarp refused. History tells us that when they were preparing to, to nail him to the stake around which they had piled piles of wood to burn him at the stake, when they were prepared to nail him to the stake so that he wouldn't try to escape the flames, Polycarp convinced them that he would not even attempt to leave if that was God's will for his life. And so they didn't nail him. He stood there in the midst of that pile of wood, and as they lit the flames, he was praying to God Almighty. History tells us that he looked up towards heavens as the flames were rising around him, giving praise to God in the midst of the fact that his body was being literally roasted. And he died because he had strong, undeniable faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What faith? Would I be willing to do that? Are you willing to do that if called upon? I believe there's significance to the timing of the lesson this morning, given the direction of history around us that is fast changing today, something that you and I ought to take note of. First and foremost, I would simply say to you today, if you know, if you, if you do not know with rock-solid confidence that you have a personal relationship with God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, having confessed your sins and repented of your sins and turned by faith to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and committed to follow the Lord for the rest of your life in obedience to what he said in, in Luke 9, 23, when Jesus says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And if you haven't made that commitment to follow Christ and to obediently practice the principles of his holy word every day of your life, I would encourage you to give careful examination to what is your relationship with God. Because it's not going to suffice just to call yourself a Christian, folks. As we move further into a world that is becoming very rapidly anti-Christian, anti-God, anti-Bible, you need to know that you know that you know. If you've not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and, he, and know with confidence that he is your Lord and Savior, I would encourage you to give consideration to that today. But even Polycarp, as early as he came along, and some historians tell us that Polycarp probably lived during the time of John, the Apostle John. In fact, some have suggested that he may have even been a student of John in his latter years, John's latter years, the Apostle John. So Polycarp had fresh on his mind the first martyr of the church. His name is Stephen. Stephen helps us to see by his life, by his testimony, by his witness, and by his sacrifice that we must trust in Christ in life and death. And so in the, in the lesson, I hope to, to show you through the scriptures how God's people can speak boldly, empowered by the Spirit's presence. And we can. I want you to be able to see in the message today that God's people can proclaim God's word empowered by the Spirit's understanding God's word will be illuminated to us by his Holy Spirit we can understand God's word thanks to the ministry of the Holy Spirit God's people can face persecution empowered by the Spirit's filling and so I direct your attention in your Bibles to a portion of Acts chapter 6 we'll begin there as we look at this fact that God's people can speak boldly empowered by the Spirit's presence in Acts chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 8 and 10. Now, we know that Stephen, if you know the book of Acts, early in chapter 6, Stephen, along with us, uh, several godly men, men full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, mature in the faith, were elected by the church to serve as what would be the equivalent of our deacons. So he's a deacon. He's a, he's a servant of the, of the people of, the, of, of God in the church. But he's an unusual man. He's a man that is so filled with the Holy Spirit, so filled with power and the grace of God, that God uses him in a very instrumental way. And so Stephen is teaching and preaching the word of God. 
in the community there in Jerusalem, and certainly he's drawing a lot of attention to himself, and unfortunately it's negative attention. It's, it's adversarial attention from the Jewish leaders who don't want to hear him preach. They don't want to hear this message of Christ. It's already, it's already you know, cost our Savior his life. It's already cost Peter and John the, uh, the ridicule of the Jewish leaders, and now here's Stephen. And he's standing before those who would like nothing more than to see him destroyed. And it says in verse 8, in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 8, now Stephen, full of grace and power. And folks, this is grace and power, not that he conjured up on his own, but this is grace and power that comes by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, accessible to all of us. And so full of grace and power, he was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen's Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. So as Stephen is there in Jerusalem, proclaiming the word of God, working powerful miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, in addition to the apostles, there were a select number of other members of the church at that time who possessed powers to do works of wonder and signs of miracles. And here he is, he's doing this at that time. And so as, as, as we see, he, he immediately runs into opposition by a group that is called the Freedmen's Synagogue. And, and scholars tell us this, this is probably actually three synagogues represented here. Synagogues were places of, of worship, places of studying the word of, of studying the Torah for the Jews. The Jews would gather in, in synagogues when outside of the city of Jerusalem. So there were probably three synagogues represented by the group that we are told here. The Freedmen Synagogue probably compri comprised of Jews whose ancestors were actually slaves to the Romans. And they had, they had gained their freedom and come back to Jerusalem. And they called themselves the freedmen. And so, and they, and they were dispersed outside of Jerusalem as well. And so they had their synagogue that they attended. But also in the midst of this group that is countering Stephen at this time and challenging him are those that are from Cilicia and, and from Asia, also from Cyrenia and from Alexandra. Cyrenia is, uh, is uh, or Cyrene rather, is, is a northern African city. You may recall when Jesus was carrying the cross through Jerusalem that, that a man was recruited by the name of Simon. He was from Cyrene. And so from this city, we have these Jews who are from the northern North African city of Cyrene and also those from the city of Alexandria. They were they comprised a synagogue, but they're all Jews, all belonging to synagogues outside of Jerusalem. But they're in in the city of Jerusalem at this time, and Stephen has drawn their attention. The others from Cilicia, which by the way would have been the region that the apostle Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, came from, made up a synagogue of those from Asia Minor and Asia proper, and they were all arguing with Stephen. The thing that I think is important for us to see in this passage is that, but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom. Folks, that's not just Stephen's wisdom. He, he probably was an intelligent man, but we're talking about godly wisdom, wisdom that is manifested in him because of his relationship with Jesus Christ, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. Remember, when he was chosen as a deacon of the church, he was described as a man that was not only full of faith, but full of the Holy Spirit, a man full of grace and power. So what you see is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that takes this normally average guy and empowers him, gives him the ability to stand up against these Jews who are, are countering him, arguing with him, and they quickly dis discern and determine that they're no match for him. 
because of his biblical knowledge of the scriptures, he's given a perfect defense of the history of the Jews where they're making false accusations against him, that he's trying to attack Moses, that he's trying to attack God, he's attacking the temple. Listen, Stephen goes back and gives a glowing, if you, if you want to just go back and read the whole account over the next couple of chapters, he gives a complete thorough history of the, of the, of the Jewish people all the way back to, to Abraham, representing his deep respect for his Jewish heritage. He knew who he was as a Jew. He appreciated who he was. He had great respect for the history of his people and how God had worked so marvelously working through the patriarchs and through David and, and through the prophets all the way up to the time that they found themselves. And so they, the, the, the adversaries, these Jews from synagogues outside of the city of Jerusalem, found themselves unable to trip him up. I put in my notes here that biblical wisdom plus the Holy Spirit equals victory. You got to know the Bible, folks. You got to be trained in the word of God. That doesn't mean you have to be a scholar of the scriptures, but you got to be familiar with the word of God. That's why at Cornerstone, we give attention to teaching our, our members the word of God, Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, systematically, book by book, sometimes chapter by chapter, sometimes verse by verse. We preach expositorily because we want you to know the word of God so that you are equipped by the spirit of God so that when you have to give a defense, you're ready. Well, you said, well, I would like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What's your excuse? Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, he's writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, don't be drunk with wine, strong drink, which is dissipation and excess. He said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You want to be under the influence of someone? Be under the, the, the influence and the power of the Spirit of God and let him control your thoughts. Let him control your mind. And that's exactly what is happening here. The Spirit of God enables Stephen to stand and to give a glowing testimony. And so as you see here, he's in Stephen, you see a challenge to you and me. We all face different versions of, of, of opposition. There's probably no one here who is truly a follower of Christ that hasn't run into some degree of opposition when you sought to talk about your faith in Christ or share about the word of God or tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, that opposition, I believe, with the growing secularism of our society is becoming more and more intense. And you and I must be ready to take a stand. But, you know, sometimes Christians have excuses for not being bold and sharing the faith. Sometimes people have an excuse like they're afraid that they're not smart enough. They don't know enough. Folks, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to be able to share the faith. First of all, begin with your personal relationship and understand what Jesus Christ means to you. Know who Jesus Christ is. Know what the scripture says about him. Be able to, to share from the word of God that he was born of a virgin. He, he lived among man. He was fully God, fully man. And yet he, he revealed the kingdom of God and he taught the principles of God. And he, he came and gave his life on the cross and, and died for our sins because we are all sinners. Know what the word says about you. The fact that, you know, we're all sinners. There's none righteous. I don't care how moral you are, how good you are. I don't care how, how great your reputation is. The fact is, the Bible makes it abundantly clear. Every one of us are in need of God's saving. So start with what you know in the word of God and share that. Some people are hesitant to share their faith and be bold in sharing the gospel because subconsciously they believe that it's really all up to them. It's as if you're sent out as a traveling salesman and you've got to make a certain sales quota and the pressure is on. Nobody can do it but you. 
You've got all the tools, and if you want to eat, you got to you got to have sales, and and it all boils down to your personality and your skills and your ability to sell the product, and on and on and on. We're not salesmen. We're simply people who have received a marvelous gift from God, and we're so overflowed with the joy of knowing Jesus Christ and having the wonderful blessings and benefits of being a part of the body of Christ and knowing that our sins are forgiven and having a glorious home in heaven waiting for us. Listen, we're so excited about it. We just want to share it and invite others to join in. You know what? The ultimate outcome of your sharing experience is not on you. You don't save people. I've never saved anyone. My 35 years of pastoral ministry, I've never saved anyone. Have I shared the gospel with people? You better believe it. Will I do it? Yes, I will. But you know what? Only God saves. You share the truth. You pray and leave the results to God. As Paul says, he might water a plant and Apollos waters, but God brings the the fruit. And so it, it doesn't ultimately rest upon you. The salvation of souls is not ultimately your responsibility, our responsibility to stand firm and to stand bold and to share the truth. Every opportunity we get, irregardless of the opposition and the resistance that we might encounter. And when you do so, do so with two foundational truths in the back of your mind. Number one, we should always proclaim Christ with humility, patience, and long-suffering. There's no reason, there's no excuse, there's no way for Christians to go out here into the, out of the community and beyond with an attitude of arrogance, as if we're better than other people. You don't go out to the lost looking down your nose at them, standing up on your soapbox and say, well, look at me. Now, we'd do well to remember what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, when he said, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to offer to those who ask you a reason for the hope that is in you. And do so with meekness and fear, Peter said. Not arrogance and pride. And share the gospel. You know, it's interesting because in Acts chapter 6 and verse 15, it talks about, and all who sat in the council look, looking steadfastly at him. They were, they were listening to what Stephen was saying. And this council of Jewish leaders and, and, and rulers who had been gathered, listen, they saw something in this young man that they knew was different. It says they saw his face as the face of an angel. Listen, when you are walking with the Lord and you are true to your calling as a Christian and the Spirit of God abides in you and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control is exuding from you. Let me tell you something. Your face may not look like an angel, but folks will be able to determine there's something different about you. And they saw that in Stephen. Whether they agreed with him or not, they knew there was something in this young man they didn't even have. Well, let's keep moving along because I want you to look in Acts chapter 7 and, and, and from this, this episode in Stephen's life. Now, he's, he's, he's laying it on the, on the line. And he's preaching boldly or teaching boldly because he, he knows the word of God. He's been walking with the Lord. He's been trained by the apostles. And in chapter 7, verse 44, I want us to see how God's people proclaim God's word empowered by the Spirit's understanding. Lean on the Holy Spirit. Learn the word of God. Read the word of God. Meditate on the word of God. But let the Spirit of God illuminate the scriptures to help you to understand it even more fully. And that's exactly what's going on, beginning in verse 44. Stephen says, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony, 
He's talking about the tabernacle that God instructed Moses to construct as the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness from Egypt on the way to the promised land. <clears throat> In that tabernacle, they had a, a, a sacred section called the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in there on the Day of Atonement to offer an offering. for. And in that Holy of Holies was the, the testimony, the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant. The testimony of the, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, folks, simply were symbolic representations of God's promises to the people of Israel and God's presence with the people of Israel. And so Stephen is recounting the history. He says, our ancestors had the tablet of the te testimony in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had, get, he had seen. And God gave Moses the blueprints. Our ancestors in turn received it and with Joshua brought it with them or brought it when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them until the days of David. In other words, when they came into the promised land, guess what they brought? They brought their livestock, they brought their tents, they brought their belongings, they brought their families, and they brought the tabernacle, and they brought the Ark of the Covenant. And in verse 46, he, fa he found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. You remember, David, after he was uh, called to be king, anointed to be king of Israel, one of the first things David did after he built up Jerusalem, got his own palace, he said, we need to build a house for God. We need to build a, a place that is worthy of Jehovah to be worshipped. He really wanted to do that, but God put the brakes on it and basically said, David, I hear what you're saying. I know your heart. But you're not the man. You're a man of war. I will let your son Solomon build that. That's what, that's what Stephen is sharing right here. In verse 47, it was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. And he's quoted from Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 49, but he's quoting from Isaiah 66, where God said, through the prophet Isaiah, Heaven is my throne, and the earth my footstool. What sort of house will you make, build for me, says the Lord? Oh, what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? God is basically saying through Isaiah to his people, how can you build me a house? God is spirit. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And by the way, when you go to build me a building, all the building supplies, I'm the one who made them. You're building with my stuff. How can you come up with something that is going to honor me, the God of the universe? There's no building that could ever contain the presence of God. Nice thought, though. That's why we shouldn't get too attached to our sanctuaries. Oh, I appreciate and I thank God for providing us with a beautiful place that's comfortable that we can worship Him. But we don't worship this place, folks. Nor do I think when I, and I'm using the last one to leave. <laughs> When I turn off the lights and, and the heat and whatever and, and, and lock the door and turn on the alarm, I don't say, God, are you okay? You go, are you going to be okay in there till we get back? He's out there in the world ahead of you. You can never go anywhere where God isn't. Stephen is saying to them because they were attacking him, just like they attacked Jesus with false witnesses that said that Jesus had said that he was going to tear down the temple. He says, oh, no, tear it down and build it back in three days. Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple, nor was Stephen talking about the physical temple. Stephen was not an, he was an, an, an enemy of the temple. He recognized the importance that the temple, the tabernacle, the temple had for the people of God in worshiping. But he said, you don't worship the temple. You worship the God of the temple the God that the temple represents. And so when he had made that pretty clear, or tried to, and up to this point, he's given a glowing, thorough 
comprehensive history of the people of God, the nation of Israel. And all, he's basically saying, listen, you're not dealing with a dummy here. I know you don't like my message, but listen, believe it or not, I'm a child of God. So now after he's given this powerful history, thorough in all details, and pointed out their weaknesses in their interpretation of history, then the tone changes because it goes from being the educator to becoming the adversary. And he turns the shotgun on them. They've got two barrels loaded at him. And suddenly now, it's kind of like watching Bugs Bunny and Alma, Al, Al, Alma Fudd always chasing Bugs Bunny with that double barrel shotgun. One time he got confused and Bugs had the shotgun and Alma was looking up the barrel. Now Stephen's got the barrel aimed at these self-righteous antagonistic Jewish leaders. And in verse 51, if you're following in your copy of God's word, chapter 7, verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked people. You're so set in your prideful, arrogant, ungodly ways. That all you can do is look straight ahead. You can't even consider that you might be wrong. You can't even consider the possibility that you may be out of the will of God because you're out of the word of God. And Stephen has shown that. You stiff-necked people. Now, that's not a way to gain popularity and have a lot of friends. But that was not Stephen's agenda at that point. He wanted them to see that they were on the wrong side of God. All along thinking they were on the right side of God. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts. Don't come to me with your Abrahamic covenant and, and brag about your physical circumcision and all of that at the eighth day and all of that. That's baloney. You may be physically circumcised, Stephen has said, but your hearts are uncircumcised. You have not made a faith covenant with God. Your hearts and your ears, you're not even willing to listen. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. You already have or you soon will. And you're honest Sincere attempt to share the truth of the gospel with someone. You're going to run up against stiff-necked people. You're going to run up with people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You know you're telling the truth. You know you're speaking the truth. You want nothing more than the Spirit of God to open up their hearts and that they would receive the truth and they would receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's breaking your heart to think that they're going to die and go to hell and spend eternity in torment separated from God forever. And you're sincere. But they won't even budge. They got the back to you spiritually and they're not even about to turn their neck around. Not all of them. But some of them. He, Stephen goes on in verse 40, uh, 51 and says, You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. You're just like your daddy and your granddaddy and your great-granddaddy. God speaks and you don't listen. God sends his prophets to you with the truth and you kill them. God sends his only begotten son with the truth of God, offering his very life for, your, for the salvation of your sins, and you crucify him. You're just like your daddy. Well, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to have heard that and understand that that's probably going to get him in trouble. And when we stand on the truth of the word of God, and folks, please hear my heart. Don't, don't share 
God's love letter with a mean spirit. Don't, don't dare try to share the gift of salvation made possible by the Son of God in a sense of arrogance, of pride. When Jesus, the Bible says, humbled himself from the glories of heaven to take on the humble state of man. And then with that went low enough, even lowered himself to take the place of being executed on the cross like a criminal. Now, there's no reason to be angry. There's no reason. Stephen was simply angry at these religious leaders who were basically barring other people from coming to Christ. They were a hindrance to other people coming to the Lord. You know, I talked about Stephen speaking with boldness, speaking with clarity from the scriptures, and you and I can too, based on the illumination of, of scripture. If you're following your study guide on page 68, and he gives a, a little blurb on the illumination of scripture. So fill in the blank. Let me just read it. It says, illumination of scripture because of the vast difference between God's wisdom and ours. And I say, amen. <laughs> God said in Isaiah 55, eight, uh, 5 through 8, or 8 and 9, he, he says, my, my thoughts are not your thoughts, talking to us, nor are my ways your ways. He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts than your thoughts and my ways than my ways. Listen, you don't understand everything of God. Amen? I don't understand everything of God. Nor will we. You know why? Duh. I've got Charlie's brain. God's brain is absolute. He's omniscient. So... There's a vast difference between God's wisdom and ours because of humanity's sinful state. Human beings are incapable on our own of fully grasping spiritual truth without being aided by the Holy Spirit through the process of illumination. That's why when sometimes you get stumped and you're studying the Word of God, don't get frustrated. Throw your Bible away and say you're going to become a heathen or something. Just sit back and say, okay, Holy Spirit, I need some help. And either he'll illuminate that word and you say, oh, take you to another passage that will help to understand it. Or he may take you to another Christian to say, go to so-and-so. They'll talk to you about it. But, but he'll help you to get the full illumination. Well, we've got to keep moving. I want you, in this third point, I want you to see in Acts chapter 7, verse 54 through 60, God's people face persecution empowered by the Spirit's filling. Let's pick up there in verse 54, chapter 7. Now, you just heard Stephen's railing of the Jewish leaders in their, their superficiality and their piousness. And in verse 54, he says, it, it says, when they heard these things, they were enraged. If you're looking at the New American Standard Version, it says they were cut to the quick, which literally means to be sawn in half. What Stephen was saying was like cutting the veneer of their superficiality and their piety away and, and, and out gushed their absolute sinful, diabolical nature. And they were enraged and gnashed their teeth. I don't know if you've ever been so mad and so frustrated that you gnashed your teeth. Have you ever seen anybody that mad at you? My advice is run. They're going to hurt somebody. It's probably going to be you. Now, I know people that grind their teeth in the night, but that's different, okay? I'm talking about just so they were, they were that way. Listen, Jesus even describes hell, the eternal darkness, where people are cast out under the judgment of God. And listen, people in hell aren't up over there. They aren't over there repentant. You know, oh, Lord, forgive us. They're still angry. They're still mad at God. They're gnashing their teeth. That's what, that's what sin does. Well, i got to keep moving. They're enraged. They're gnashing their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God. Man, I wish I could have been a fly on the sidewalk. Woo! He saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We know that when Christ ascended into heaven after his, after his resurrection, 
that he took his, his rightful place at the right side of God, seated at the right hand of God, but now he's standing. Because I believe that the Lord recognized the authenticity and, and, and the love and the devotion, and, and he had such deep appreciation for, for what Stephen was doing. I believe the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, stood up looking down from the glories of heaven through the clouds right into the eyes of Stephen as if to communicate in, even inaudibly, it's going to be all right, my son. It's going to be all right. And it was. In verse 56, it says, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They, being the Jewish leaders who were so incensed the gnashing their teeth, they yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears. Now, those of you who are parents, sometimes maybe you get a child that's a little unruly and you're trying to tell them, I want you to go straighten up your room. I've heard the umpteenth time, you know, and they're, I, I, I. I never tried that much with my parents, but they were pretty strict disciplinarians. I was usually using my hands to cover something else. <laughs> but they, were, they, they covered their ears and they, they together. I mean, they're just incensed. They're, they're filled with rage, nothing but hatred. And in unison, they all rush on Stephen and they, they're grabbing him. They dragged him out of the city Verse 58, and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul. Hmm. Saul. That rings a bell. Could have been King Saul. He's dead. Saul of Tarsus. First introduction to the Apostle Paul. He was holding the coats of those who were killing God's faithful servant, Stephen. But if he's close enough to hold the coats, he's hearing and seeing everything Stephen's going through, every word Stephen is saying. Don't lose sight of that. Listen, this wasn't even a proper Jewish stone. <laughs> that sounds like crazy. But according to Jewish tradition, if you're going to stone somebody properly, you would find a cliff that was at least 10 feet high. And you gather around the accused and you push them off, assuming that there's rocks and boulders and everything at the bottom to cushion his fall. And if the, if the fall didn't kill him, folks, I'm not kidding. I, I read this out of commentary. Okay, so if the fall doesn't kill him, then step two, one of the leaders takes a big boulder, drops it over the edge of the cliff onto his heart. And normally that would do it. But there's a step three for a proper stone. And if that doesn't kill him, then you get another leader, another big boulder, and you aim for the head. And that surely would take care of it. Listen, they, they didn't even give Stephen the dignity of a proper stoning. In absolute, uncontrollable rage, they grab him, they rush him out of town, they get around, and everybody's just beginning to heave stones. It is a chaotic Mob violence. Now, how would Charlie Martin respond? Provided I'm still conscious. People treat me that way. Oh, to God, that I would exhibit the grace of Stephen. While they were stoned in Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. We know he's looking up in the glory. We know he sees the face of the Lord. You'll notice that Stephen was so impressed by the death of Christ that he's almost following the protocol of Christ. Because when Christ was ready to die, he gave up his spirit to the Father. Stephen is basically saying, Jesus, as you gave your spirit to the Father, I yield my spirit to you. I realize that I'm not dying at the hands of these people. I'm dying because it was your providential divine plan that I would give my life for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the body of Christ and the church. In verse 60, I mind you now, all this time, stones, poof, 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 bones are broken, blood's oozing, all this time. 
He's not cursing. He's not railing them. He's not saying, you bunch of heathens, you wake, you're going to go to hell. No, no. He knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Where have you heard that? Could it be God's son hanging on the cross, looking down at the very ones that had crucified him, the very ones that were jeering at him, the very ones that had falsely accused him, and saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen was so deeply impressed, modeling the death of our Savior modeled for him. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Luke, the writer of Acts, Gentile physician, just has a way with words. He didn't say he was killed. No. Stephen's mission, though relatively short, was complete. And he fell asleep. When he closed his eyes in death in the midst of that mob, almost instantaneously he opened his eyes and he was in the glory of heaven. Looking into the loving, endearing face of the Savior who had died for his sins, who undoubtedly looked at Stephen and said, Well done, good and faithful servant. Now you receive your reward. Folks, you know as well as I do that the culture in which we live is almost daily growing more and more antagonistic towards Bible-believing Christians. I grew up in a culture that it was almost expected for Christians to go out and talk about Jesus. And, and for the most part, people would at least be tolerant, if not receptive, to what you're going to say. We're fast closing in on the time that that will not be the case. We've always considered ourselves historically as the good guys, as Christians, doing good deeds, showing love and, and, and peace and understanding to those around. There's storm clouds on the horizon, folks. I don't know if you've been watching the spiritual climate change, but there's storm clouds brewing. Storm clouds of opposition. Storm clouds of ostracism. And storm clouds of persecution. I don't think it's coincident that we happen to land on this lesson at this time. As I was studying it and preparing it, it was as if God was saying to me, Charlie, wake up. Wake up. You and your peers and like-minded Bible-believing Christians may find themselves sooner than you could ever have imagined in the position of a Stephen. And you need to know that you know that you know, first and foremost, that Jesus Christ is the Savior and Lord of your life. And that Almighty God is your fortress. And you trust in Him. And then you need to know that you know before the time arrives that you are willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. Don't wait till they come beating on your door. Don't wait till the sheriff's deputies are standing at the entrance of the church. You resolve that here and now. And Jesus said, to those who would be authentic followers of his in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says, if any man come after me to follow me, let him deny himself. That goes all my wants, all my dreams, all my wishes, all my comfort, all my pleasure. Deny himself. Take up his easy chair. Take up his lazy boy recliner. 
Uh-uh. Take up his cross. An instrument of sacrifice. And then don't go where you want to go. Don't go where your friends are going. Don't go where the popular trends are going. But Jesus says, and follow me. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? And how strong is your faith? I want to thank you so much for affording me the opportunity to share this message. And I want you to know I'm praying for those of you here today, those who are virtually tuned in, that God will continue to speak through this message so that we know for a fact that we are ready for whatever God has out there in, in, in the front for us. And, and in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, God was saying to the persecuted church at Smyrna, he said, do not fear any of the things that you're about to suffer. For the devil is indeed about to arrest and throw some of you into prison. And you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. But he says, but I will give you the crown of life. Reserved for those whom I love. Persecution is not a horrible thing that happens to innocent victims. Persecution is God's design to discipline his people to prepare us to be who he has called us to be and gave his son to make us to be. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we're not ready for you to speak so boldly and pointedly to our hearts. And yet, Lord, every, every part of this message is based on the life of a faithful servant who has already experienced it. Why would you expect that of Stephen and not expect it of your children today? Lord, may our lives bring glory to you in times of pleasure and prosperity. But, oh God, should the storms of adversity and persecution fall upon us, may you be glorified in the way we live our lives in the midst of trouble. And we thank you. We depend on you. You are our fortress, almighty God. And Jesus Christ, you are our champion, our King, and our Lord. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.